Thank you, Ed, for that. Just a couple of uh, follow-up announcements um, for you to be mindful. I want to just reiterate the membership class. A membership class is an opportunity um, not just to to go through the, the membership class so to become a member. It's also an opportunity to learn more about the church and how we function, why we function the way we do. And so we consider it kind of an entrance um, into our uh, our ministry and uh, would love to have you come and be a part of that next week. The other thing is, uh, you may notice in your bulletin, um, there are instructions there for how you can give online, um, but you may or may not know that we have a drop box in the back. Again, trying just to be COVID-minded, uh, you can put your... your uh, your check or whatever in an envelope, drop it in there, and that will be fine too. It's back on the table as you leave. Well, I want to invite you to get your Bibles now and turn to the book of Exodus. As you know, we are working our way through the book of Exodus, and we now find ourselves in chapter 32. And chapter 32 through 34 really is a, a, a kind of a new section in the book. And as you see, it's the section that I'm calling Sin and Restoration. And um, we want to see what the Lord has for us today. We are going to be looking at, in particular, um, the part that's sin, and that would be chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. So let's stand together. Uh, uh, Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. And let's read this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't, do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Lord, we come to... Um, really an essential passage in the whole of your word. Lord, some, some texts of scripture are uh, so profound and so sad. And uh, Lord, we come to this one, one that we uh, have, have, I'm sure, dabbled in before or uh, spent time thinking through. And I ask, Lord, that we would come in a fresh way to this text to allow you to have your way with us. So Lord, what we know not would you teach us. Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And Lord, what we are not, would you make us? And allow me as your uh, messenger to simply be, Lord, that vehicle through which you want your word to go forth into the hearts of your people, to fashion and to shape them to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, those who may be present who are not followers of you, who, who have not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through our time this morning, that they would be made aware of what that is, the gospel and that they would see you in all your beauty and glory. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I grew up many years ago, and uh, one of the, the famous sayings that came out of the show Batman, if you remember Batman, Batman and Robin were always some, in some predicament, you know, they're tied together, 
tightly on a conveyor belt that's on its way to some grinding machine and the joker's in the background giggling away, you know, because they're about to die. And then the narrator says, meanwhile, back in Gotham City, and of course that whole statement is saying there's something going on here in some warehouse somewhere with the Joker and Batman and Robin, but there's something also going on back in Gotham City. And what we need to see here is that as we come to chapter 32, this is a meanwhile back at the bottom of the mountain text. What has been happening at the top of the mountain has been, has been happening at the same time as these events that are happening at the bottom of the mountain. In other words, it's not that Moses got all this information about the tabernacle from the Lord, and then the next step is that, you know, this is happening down at the bottom of the mountain. No, these two things are happening simultaneously. You get that? And it's helpful then for us to land the plane of understanding here to see what it is that God wants us to see. So Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, why do we have it in our Bibles? What is it that God is seeking to teach us and this second generation? What is the main point of the text? Well, to get to the heart of the text, uh, we have the privilege of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so uh, this morning, I'd like to just briefly begin by walking through four passages that refer back to this text Three of them really being historical accounts. One of them, the Apostle Paul uses to caution his readers about the sin of idolatry. And we want to kind of get down to the heart of what is going on here. So Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 18. It says this, Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. So this is now Nehemiah who's interpreting the history of Israel and he's reflecting back in this kind of long array of the history and he's emphasizing this point and what they are doing here as a great blasphemy. Now I realize that's a word, somewhat of an archaic word, and the question is what does it mean? All right, to, to blaspheme means to have contempt for someone. In other words, their claim that the golden calf was the God, put that in little you know, little quotes in little g, that brought them out of Egypt was an insult to God. It was a blasphemy. It was an attitude of contempt for God. Then we move to Psalms, Psalm 106, verses 19 through 22. Again, these are, these are texts that are walking through various aspects of the history of Israel. And we just land the plane here as they're talking about what happened to the children of Israel here at the bottom of the mountain. Verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb, which is Sinai, and wrapped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Now, we often think of the great exchange as that which is referring to the fact that Christ took our sin on himself and exchange that with his righteousness. And so we have now become made righteous uh, because of his death on the cross. But we have another great exchange that is taking place here, place here. It's the true worship of Yahweh is exchanged now with the false worship of the golden calf. Third, Acts chapter 7, verse 41. This is Stephen's sermon before the religious leaders right before he is put to death. He says, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol 
and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. They're rejoicing at the golden calf that they had created with their hands. Again, a picture here of their idolatry. Now, we jump to the New Testament, and in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul now is writing this letter, and what he's saying is he's arguing for the people in Corinth to be warned and to beware, because idolatry and sexual immorality are horrible sins and terrible sins, and you need to watch out for them. And so he says in verse 6 of chapter 10, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Again, a direct quote from our text. And then in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now there's other passages of scripture that are leaning back into this section of scripture in Exodus. But these are four that I think just help us set the stage and clearly identify the fact that what is going on here is blasphemy, but it really ultimately is the sin of idolatry. And so let's put all that together, and here's the proposition for this morning. Here's what I I, I want you to walk away with. The heart that is not settled on God and his word is prone to wander into idolatry. The heart that is not settled on God and his word is prone to wander into idolatry. And you're going to see that over and over and over again in, in the scriptures. But we want to flesh that out here this morning by looking at, in particular at the idolatry that we have found in this text. So let's first of all look at the character of idolatry. Now there's much to say as to the character of idolatry, but in this passage we have at least six revelations of the character of idolatry. But before we get there, uh, we want to talk about idolatry by thinking about some definitions of idolatry. We want to come from a couple of different angles. The first definition I would like to, to reveal to you or share with you is this, that idolatry is anything, often a good thing, that has become an ultimate thing. In other words, idolatry is anything, often a good thing, even something that the Lord has given you that has become an ultimate thing. So your truck, your exercise, your job, your children, your hobbies, your vacation, even your ministry at church, all of them are good things, but they can become idols when they become ultimate things in your life. John Calvin famously said about man's heart, he says man's nature, he's talking about his heart there, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, just churning out idol, idol after idol. And today we agree with Calvin and acknowledge what this one writer says. The human heart is an idol factory churning out new idols like the conveyor belt in a manufacturing plant rolling out new widgets. Viral idols gush out of fallen hearts and flood every nook and cranny of media in our culture, in social media, television, music, movies, and novels, and memoirs. Friends, we are so inundated by the encouragements to bow down to hundreds, if not thousands, of idols throughout the week. 
Definition number two. You can identify your idols by asking two questions. Question number one, what sin am I willing to commit in order to get what I want? Secondly, what sin am I willing to commit when I don't get what I want? Here's an example of what it might look like. A toddler wants a toy. You know where this is going, right? So they're willing to rip the toy out of another toddler's hands. They're willing to sin to get what they want. Now, a toddler wants a toy, but he's not able to get that toy out of that child's hands. And so he begins to flop on the ground and throw a tantrum. He is now sinned because he isn't getting what he wants. The toy is a good thing that has become an ultimate thing to that toddler. I pick on the toddlers because we understand that. We see that. But toddlers are not the only ones that have idols. And toddlers are not the only ones that have toys or things that are valuable to them. So they're not the only ones that are guilty of idolatry. A father wants to watch a football game on Sunday. It is his day of rest, he says. And all he has been thinking about is this big game. The children are just being children, and they're playing, and they're doing stuff, and they happen to wander in front of the TV while the game is going on, and all of a sudden, the father's blood boils, and it rises up, and he yells at his children and confines them to their room for their bad behavior. He's willing to sin in order to get what he wants, and what he wants is to watch a game without interruption. And then, of course, afterward, his wife, who's been out to the store, because she's a loving wife, she's out to the store getting some groceries and some snacks so he can enjoy the game, gets there, but she gets there just as a time when something significant is about to happen. And she comes inside and says, honey, can you help me with the groceries? And he's like, why would you ask me that now they're just about to throw a touchdown. And so he gets angry with her. Now see, he's willing to sin when he isn't getting what he wants, and that is to watch the game without interruption. A good thing has become an ultimate thing. Or think about what we've seen in the past year with all the social justice protests. Something truly bad or tragic has happened. And it's plastered on social media. People are angry, and they talk to other people that are angry. And before long, there's a mob of people that are angry, and they're, they're claiming now that they have the answer, and they have seen injustice, and it must be meted out this way. And if it is not, we're going to riot. We're going to cause violence to happen. We're just going to cause trouble. You see... A good thing has become an ultimate thing. The good thing is we want justice. A good thing is something wrong has taken place and we want satisfaction for what that wrong is. But often in this situation, facts don't matter. The perception of the mob is what matters. And if they don't get what they want, then they threaten to protest, vandalize, be violent, loot more stores, and create greater unrest. A good thing 
has ultimately turned into an ultimate thing. I think we could go through our idols, and we could use lots of examples to flesh out how those are true. Now, it's important to go through all that because what we have here in this text is Israel turning to an idol instead of turning to the Lord. What does it look like here? Well, first of all, idolatry is impatient. Let's look at the the first verse here. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So what's driving their idolatry? Well, what trouble, we could say, is happening? What struggle are they enduring at that moment? That The struggle is the fact they don't know what's going on. Moses is delayed. He's been gone for 40 days. Now, friends, that's a long time. And it's understandable that they're confused. They're not sure exactly what's happening. They have lots of questions. Let's put all this into perspective. 40 days is a long time for people to wait and wonder what's going on. Even today, many in our country are wondering why our vice president, Kamala Harris, has not responded or spoken about the crisis at the Mexican border. It's been over 40 days. Now, I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just saying, why is there an outcry? Why are people concerned? Because they haven't heard anything. It's not necessarily unreasonable to say, it's been 40 days. So it's not unreasonable for these people here to say, what's going on? Where is Moses, this leader? What's happening? And they're confused as to why they're being kept waiting for answers. Again, we need to step back because we're so familiar with the story and we are very familiar with Moses. We need to be reminded that there were likely between one and a half to two million Jews here in the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard for one and a half million people to get to know one person. They might understand Moses from a distance. We've seen his calling. We've seen his marriage and his family and his interaction with God and his service as God's mouthpiece before Pharaoh and Egypt and his receiving the law and the book of the covenant and the tabernacle instructions. But the people of Israel, they have only known Moses from a distance. And that is why we read, as for this Moses... It's not a a statement of personal interaction. It's a statement of of a distant kind of relationship. And so in their waiting, friends, they have lost trust in God's men. They have become impatient and are not willing to wait any longer. Rather than trust God and wait, here's what happens. They want to force God's hand by doing something. I've just got to do something. My impatience now is is pushing me to do something. If I don't do something, if I simply wait, nothing's happening. Especially in today's world, you got to do something, you got to be active, you know. And the something that they want to do is to worship God. That's clear in the text here. But to worship God in their own way in a way that makes them feel good, secure, and safe. Friends, when we are impatient in our waiting for God, we will be tempted to find answers and solutions 
outside of God. And we will erect idols that we believe will make us feel better. So, what are you thinking and what do, does your heart turn to when you are forced to wait? Those things that we go to are the things that we treasure, that we idolize. Let me just throw out a few for you to think about your time, your agenda. I mean, how many of you have been to the post office? You look at the line. I, don't have, I, I can't fit this into my agenda today. My wife and I were out at a store yesterday. We walk into the store and we're looking for something. We looked at the line and we're like, no, that's not happening. But we still looked around. And eventually we stood in the line. And our whole day was destroyed because of it. No, look, our, our agendas, we have our agendas. All right, my time is precious, right? My needs are paramount. My comfort is everything. My will is what needs to be satisfied. These are all idols. Friends, too often we want God to move faster, and so we want to move things along, and we can be guilty of turning a quick fix or to quick fix uh, to a quick fix rather than allowing an issue that needs time to actually play out. Friends, let's just kind of put it in a, in a summary statement here. Spiritual shortcuts almost always lead to spiritual compromise. So, idolatry is impatient. Secondly, idolatry is contagious. This begins with the people, doesn't it? Verse 1, the people gather themselves together. And, 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 of course, what's happening here is the people are gathering, they're, they're complaining, they're asking questions, they're talking to each other. And so the people are gathering themselves together. And they're coming out to Aaron and they're saying, you have to make us gods. So the impatience and the delusion spreads quickly among the people, so much so that they gather as a mob to force Aaron's hand. And much of what is happening in our present culture is a very similar kind of frenzy. Do you remember where sheltering in place kicked in last year about this time? Actually, it was before this time. The, the commodity everyone wanted was toilet paper. And can you believe in your world that that is the thing you've got to have? And your, your garage has to be full of, right? Like, why do you need so many things of toilet paper? But, man, we're going to go out there. We're going to get away. Because they're getting it. So if they're getting it, we've got to go get it, right? I mean, that's just what's happening. It's a frenzy. And this is what happens with, with, with a mob mentality. People talk to each other. They get angry. And now this thing has happened. Now they come to Aaron. So the people, it begins with the people. Secondly, it's Aaron. Aaron, under the pressure of the crowd, concedes to do the crowd's bidding. And he proceeds to develop and implement a plan to craft an idol to worship. Bring your gold. I've got a plan. So now he's caught up in it. Now I want you to notice what happens next. Look at verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Friends, it is an instruction that is to be carried out by the fathers and the husbands. The husbands and the fathers are going home and saying to their wives, give me your earrings. Now, husbands, I don't know if that's always a good thing to do. I'm taking your earrings because we're going to melt them. I don't think that goes over too well. And they're getting it from their children too. 
In other words, these were men who were supposed to be responsible for their families, but they're also caught up in the mob mentality. And even what Aaron is saying now, this has turned into one big contagious mob and attitude. Friends, it's a reminder to fathers and husbands in particular that they lead and teach by their example, either to listen to and obey God or to pursue their own idolatry. So husbands and dads, in what way are you teaching your wife and your children to pursue idolatry? If you were to ask them, what is your priority? What do you live for? What do you get angry about? What do you value? What would they say? The reality is that because you've been bowing down to your idols for so long, you may not even realize what you're teaching your kids. But let's be honest, it isn't just the husbands or dads that are idol worshipers. Moms and wives can be just as guilty, can't they? I know it's Mother's Day. Well, that's my Mother's Day portion, okay? So I just want you to know that, right? And, and the point here is that when idolatry is embraced, it usually spreads, okay? The New Testament says it like this, a little leaven what? Leavens the whole lump. This is what we have here. Idolatry is catching fire among the people and affecting its leader, and in particular, the the, the fathers and the husbands. Third, idolatry is costly. Verse 3, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Now, these rings and earrings were the most treasured possessions that they had, and they were willing to give them up to be melted and to be used to fashion these, these, these false gods. But we must ask, how did these former slaves come to possess these rings and earrings of gold? Well, you know the answer if you've been here. It happens uh, at the end of the time when they were uh, just about to leave Israel. God had told them that you are going to uh, receive the spoils of Egypt. And, and, and it's just an incredible story. The Egyptians just came out and said, look, take this and take this and take this and take this. And whether it be clothes and jewelry and, and metals, all this kind of stuff. And so Israel's marching off into the wilderness with all this stuff, the spoils of Egypt. So their rich resources were given to them by uh, by God's hand of providence. Now, if we turn to chapter 25, we see that God had other intentions for these resources. Again, God is with Moses up in the mountain revealing the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. And it begins in chapter 25 by God instructing Moses to have the people contribute out of their resources gold and all these different kinds of linen and different spices and stuff like that. These were the resources that were there supposed to be in the the tabernacle. As we went through the tabernacle, do you remember all the things that were made of gold? The Ark of the Covenant was, was covered in gold. The mercy seat was solid gold. The lampstand was solid gold. The table of showbread, again, was covered in gold. Gold, 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 gold. So the people of Israel, by the giving of their most precious possessions so that they, uh, they, their handcrafted idols could be created, they were robbing God rather than giving their treasured resources to be used where God intended them to be used. 
And friends, it's worth asking, are we guilty of investing our resources, our time, our talents, our treasures, toward our idols to the neglect of using them for the furtherance of God's kingdom? And in particular, to be faithful in our giving and support of his church. Now again, it's not saying that there are some pursuits in life that are, are, are that aren't good that might take some money, but you can invest all your resources into things that are good to the neglect of what God really intends for those resources to go toward. So the time and resources we invest in the pursuit of our idols takes away from the time and resources that can and should be used for God's glory. Now remember, our idols may be good things, but they have become ultimate things that can result in our robbing of God. It's often said you can figure out someone's idols simply by looking in their checkbook. Today you might say looking on their online account, right? I mean, it's a little bit different, but you get the point. We often express our hearts in how we handle our finances. Idolatry is costly. For idolatry is insanity. It's insane. I just want you to think about what's going on here. I mean, a golden calf? Really? These are God's people. A golden calf? Aaron? A golden calf? How quickly they attribute to these many gods, is what the text says, the fact that they have been liberated from Egypt. This is how history is rewritten. What they're saying and claiming is absurd, friends. It's insane. It's delusional. But that is what idolatry does. It causes you to think things that aren't true. It causes you to claim things that are not true. And it causes you to believe things that are not true because they fit the narrative that best suits your purposes. We haven't heard from Moses. We need to attribute some worship to God. So we're going to do it our way. And we're going to make a golden calf. Even though he specifically said, don't do this. Do you remember the Ten Commandments? What is the second Ten Commandment? Or the second commandment? It's all about idolatry. Guys, what we have here is just a violation after violation of the Ten Commandments. That's why in today's sexually disoriented society, we are being bombarded by the insanity of gender classification. It's absurd. It's insane. It's delusional. This is, they're saying that it's not your biology that determines your gender. What you feel, that's what makes you either male, female, transsexual, or non-binary. And friends, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 describes the delusion and perversion of man's hearts when he says in describing the degeneration of society, this is Romans 1 and verse 28, and since they did not see to, fit, to, fit, to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. What happens to a debased mind? It, it thinks things that are not true. It claims things that are not true. It believes things that are not true. And any Christian in their right mind listens to the sexual nonsense being broadcast and promoted and is left saying the claims that one's biological sex is an indication of one's gender, those claims are absurd. And to think that it's perfectly right and normal for a male athlete 
who identifies as a woman to compete in women's sports is absurd. The problem is we're afraid to say it because society doesn't like it. It makes them feel bad. But look, if we're going to be honest in our Christianity, we say, that's wrong. It's an idol. It's sinfulness. It's being promoted in our culture. But when society says it enough, people will conform. And society now is bowing down at the idol of sexual freedom. And if you don't bow down, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace of hatefulness, bigotry, and cancel culture. The very things that Christians are being accused of because they're standing in God's word. They needed gods to worship. And so they fashioned a golden calf. It was likely an apis bull, which not only was used in the worship in Egypt, but was also used in the worship of other nations around. Idolatry is insanity. Just let that sink in. The next one, number five, idolatry is syncretistic. You say, what does the word syncretism mean? Well, syncretism simply means the attempt by man to blend two opposing ideas together. Notice that they're they're saying that it is the Lord, Yahweh, whom they wish to worship. Look look at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to the golden calf. Is that what it says? It says to the Lord. I just want you to understand, these people were trying to worship Yahweh. They're making that claim. But they're also saying that it's the gods and ultimately this golden calf who brought you out of Egypt. They're not denying Yahweh's activity, but they are blending him with the gods fashioned and shaped by Aaron the high priest. And then notice the sacrifices that they are to offer. We find this in verse 6. A burnt offering? A peace offering? Do those sound familiar? Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Turn back. I want you to see this. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 on the front end is where we have the Ten Commandments laid out. And if you remember, after the Ten Commandments, the people come to Moses and they say, look, we've listened to God. We don't want to do that anymore because it was just so overwhelming to them. We, we, will, we will listen to God through you. And then we find God giving Moses these instructions. I just want you to listen very, very carefully to what is being said. Verse 22, Exodus 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven, and you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of what? Gold, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. You see where they're getting all this stuff from? Now here's the question we must ask ourselves. How much of the world has the church in America welcomed into its thinking, its beliefs, and its times of worship? How about its view of God or its view of man? 
How about its view of the Bible or salvation or worship? How has the world infiltrated the church and its goals and agendas, its leadership styles and responsibilities, its message and its preaching? One African-American brother, Virgil Walker, speaking about the presence of social justice and critical race theory in the church says this, critical race theory and social justice hasn't infiltrated the church. To infiltrate the church implies that the church is resisting it, looking out for it, protecting it. But the church, by and large, hasn't been resisting it. It has been embraced and welcomed it in. The church has abdicated its responsibility to stand against ungodliness. And it's embracing an unbiblical religion that preaches a false gospel. It seeks to remove God as king, to remove his word as sufficient, and to remove his gospel as the power of God unto salvation. That's powerful, friends. But he's right. And friends, syncretism is hard to detect at times because it looks like the truth. It sounds like the truth. It behaves like the truth. But it's not the truth. In 2006, I was privileged to go to Israel on a Holy Land tour. Rebecca was with me. Um, and uh, there was a bunch of other people, but she was there too. And there was one place in particular that had the most impact on me. And it was a place called Tel Dan. And the reason why it has so much impact on me is at Tel Dan, uh, we have in that location the ruins of one of Jeroboam's temples, one of his high places. Now, Jeroboam was the king of the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam was the king of the southern uh, kingdom. And Jeroboam built this high place, both in Bethel and Dan, but the one in Dan in particular I'm thinking about, because he didn't want the people in the north who would travel down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple to then go and side with Rehoboam. So he built his own places of worship, modeled after the temple. And where in the temple you would have the Ark of the Covenant, in Jeroboam's temple, you had a golden calf. Looked the same. The layout was very similar. A lot of the same sacrifices were being taken place. But it wasn't the same. Friends, I was struck at how close to the truth false religion can be. And I was struck by the fact that syncretism is so deceptive and can so easily manifest and grow among those who should know better. And I wonder how much syncretism is present in our lives. I wonder how much our thinking and values and ideologies of the world, we, we blend with our good theology. Friends, the sin of idolatry forces us to pursue our walk with God in syncretistic ways. And we're comfortable merging and shaping the ideas of the world and the truth of God's revealed world. Friends, such Behavior is insulting to God. It is blasphemy. Idolatry 
sixth point here is this. is fun. Verse 6, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They rose up early. That wasn't interesting. I mean, the, the things that you love, you're typically willing to rise up early and do. I love to play golf. And I would just as soon have a tea time at like 6.30 in the morning so I can get out in front of everyone and just enjoy my day. We typically get up for the things that we love. You go to Disneyland and you're at the hotel, you don't say, oh, let's sleep into about 11 o'clock. No, you're up at the crack of dawn because you want to get there. You want to get on the rise before the crowd gets there. I mean, you want to go. That's what's going on here. They rose up early the next day. And what did they do when they got up? They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So they certainly were being spiritual. Might better say they were being religious. And they sat down to enjoy a meal followed by having some fun together. But their fun wasn't what you and I would do at a July 4th picnic where we're, we're tossing eggs, not throwing eggs, but we're tossing eggs, you understand that. There's a, maybe a game of water balloon volleyball, or some wiffle ball, or throwing a frisbee, or kicking the soccer ball around. No, no, no. The expression they rose up to play is a euphemism for sexual orgy. Surely there was celebration, music, and dancing, but their worship had degenerated to its lowest form to take on the kind of worship that existed in the pagan religions around them. All under the umbrella of, this is a feast to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. While at the same time, there's a golden calf and there's immoral behavior going on. Israel was supposed to be a beacon to the nations. That Yahweh is the one true God. That's what ends the song of Moses in chapter 15. In verses 14 and 15, this is what we're told. The Philistines are trembling because of what they heard about what happened to, to the people of Israel and their God. Edom is dismayed. Moab and Canaan are melting away. But now the people of Israel under Aaron's leadership are behaving just like all of them. But that is what idolatry will do because it opens up the door to create a God of your imagination. I love what R.C. Sproul says here. The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. Idolatry is fun. Now, friends, having said all that, we have six characteristics of idolatry. Let's think now in the same text, what are some indications of the cure that is necessary for idolatry? And we must not come to this text with a smug, confident attitude. We must be honest about the fact that idolatry is something that we face and struggle with every day of our lives. Today, we sang the song, Come Thou Fount, and I want to draw your attention to the last stanza. 
Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Why? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here is my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Friends, the truth is that our hearts are prone to wander from the God that we love. So what can we do? What must we do? Let's think of four implications then from our text. Number one, we must remember the kindness and the grace of God. Friends, we've already hinted at this, but Israel had forgotten God's kindness and his grace toward them. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, God heard their cry and he came to their aid and he systematically exposed the impotence of Egypt's gods when he brought the plagues to bear on them. He had miraculously delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. He had blessed them with abundance of spoils as they left. He had opened the waters of the sea and allowed them to walk through on dry land while the Egyptian army drowned in that water. He provided them with water in the, in the wilderness and food in the wilderness. He revealed to them the Ten Commandments along with the Book of the Covenant and laid the foundation for the nation to be guided by his word. And he covenanted with them at the bottom of the mountain. Truly God had been gracious and kind to his people. But I want you also to note that they had attributed their deliverance to this man Moses rather than to God. Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what has become of him. The man. And friends, this is so typical of people who have forgotten God or just can't see him. They're totally man-centered rather than God-centered. In their minds, it was Moses who came to deliver them. It was Moses who brought about the plagues and led them out of Egypt and, and led them through the waters and provided the food and the water in the wilderness. What they couldn't see, although it had been told to them over and over and over again, was the message that Moses proclaimed to them that Moses didn't bring them out of Egypt, that Moses hadn't part of the waters, that Moses hadn't provided man and water in the wilderness, that Moses hadn't made a covenant with them. It was their God. It was Yahweh. And in Exodus 15, we find Moses and Israel singing that song together that says, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my son, uh, and, uh, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. This is Israel singing just a few days earlier. And in chapter 17, we find the people of Israel quarreling with Moses because they didn't have water to drink. And they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt and kill us and our children and our livestock with us? Right there. They're turning on Moses. So they attribute this to Moses. They turn on Moses. And friends, that's often the way it is, isn't it? God's people have a tendency to forget God by looking to human leaders. 
whether they be presidents, politicians, cultural gurus, pastors, but they can't see God. They have difficulty attributing their blessing or their trial to him, and they become thoroughly man-centered rather than God-centered. Friends, we must stop looking at men to be our savior. That's a caution to us. You can just reflect over the past few years and you can think of men that maybe you have put your hope in when your hope should be put firmly in the God who created this world and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we must do our part to remember the kindness and the grace of God toward us. That's one of the reasons why we study God's word. That's why one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's one of the reasons why we celebrate the water, waters of baptism. That's why at a, at a wedding, we, we, we celebrate the gospel. We're constantly reminding ourselves over and over and again who God is, what he has done for us, who we are, and the wonder of the gospel. That's why we sing songs of praise that remind us of God and what he's done. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, if you would, please. This is really important. Let's consider how the Apostle Paul connects the events of Exodus 32, 1 through 6, to his argument about the sinfulness of mankind. You may not have seen this before, but I want you to hear the language that we have here, Romans 1, verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, did Israel know God in that sense? Had he revealed himself? Yep. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. You with me so far? Everything connecting? And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, I realize this is referring much to much broader circumstances than specifically what we have here in Exodus chapter 32. But what we have in Exodus 32 is exactly what we have here in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and following. They knew God. They didn't honor him. They didn't give him thanks. They became futile in their thinking Their hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they were fools. And they exchanged the worship of the one true God for a golden calf. Friends, this passage is screamed to us to remember the kindness and the grace of God toward us. Or we will become futile in our thinking so as to make the great exchange, replacing the glory of God with the worship of idols. Secondly, not just remember the kindness and grace of God, but trust and obey the clear instructions of God. Friends, hear this. God had spoken. He had spoken his word to them directly through Moses, and he had covenanted with them in chapter 24, and the people of Israel, having listened to what God said, and Moses having repeated it to them, Say twice, and the, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's verse 3 of chapter 24. And then in verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
And then Moses goes up the mountain. <laughs> it's just, what? But in just under 40 days, they've, they, they give up on trusting God and his word. And friends, what this text should be screaming at us is that God's word matters. It is one thing to hear God's word. It's another thing to listen to God's word. But it's quite another thing to trust in God's word. Trust is required when it seems like, I'm not sure what's going on. You anchor yourself in it. And friends, we don't just marinate ourselves in the word of God for the troubles we've experienced in the past or the the things that we're experiencing in the present, but we marinate in God's word for the troubles that are yet to come. And we don't know those troubles that are around the corner and when they will come and what they'll look like, but we, we do believe God and his promises. We are to listen to the instructions of warning and heed God's loving counsel. Now you can summarize the Bible really with a simple phrase. Promises made, Old Testament, promises kept, New Testament. God has spoken. He's made promises. He's spoken and he keeps his promises. His word matters. What he says, he means. And when he speaks and gives instruction and counsel, he's seeking to affect your heart, not simply to be some, you know, some kind of like, you know, person who's just not thinking and just being obedient to be obedient. No, he loves you. He cares about you. He wants you to think. He wants you to know that his word is a gift to you. One as well said, it ought not surprise us when a person neglects the study of scripture, buys into nearly everything else. If you're not spending time in God's word, if you're not placing yourself willfully and deliberately under the preaching of God's word or some study group or all those things, if you're not doing that, then you will be led by something and you will embrace it because you don't have the guardrails and the counsel and the wisdom and the certainty of God's word. We need it. We are desperate for it. If God's people will know the truth trust the truth, and obey the truth, they will be able to face the world into which God has called them. Friends, I realize that we walk out today into a world that maybe we couldn't imagine 20 years ago. And I realize that as we're driving, we're seeing U-Haul vehicles, they're all going to Idaho, right? We don't want a beer. We hate California. But friends, this is where God has called you. This is the darkness into which he has placed you as light. And friends, if there was ever a time in the history of the world where God's people needed a revival to know God and his word more, it would be now. We have so much information. And the reason, part of the reason we are not growing in our knowledge of God is because we have so much information, we don't think we need to because we can always Google it. Googling it gets, I'm going to say, data. Spending time in God's word helps your soul marinate. Two totally different things. 
Trust and obey the clear instructions of God. Three, we must faithfully shepherd the people of God. You're like, oh, I'm off the hook now. We're talking about the elders of the church. Well, yes, I understand that. What, What must strike each and every one of us as we reflect on this passage is the failed leadership of Aaron, Israel's high priest. It must. I mean, you've got to be thinking to yourself, hey, they come to you, Aaron, and they say, let's, let's build, let's create some gods. And Aaron's like, okay, sounds good. I got a plan. Give me your gold earrings. What? And when the people, they, they come, and they start to badmouth Moses. Did you catch that? And Aaron should have been the first to defend him and push back on what they were saying. They're, they're, what do you mean, this Moses? I mean, he should have gotten angry. Who do you think you are? Don't you know that this Moses is the one God called to stand before Pharaoh and challenge him with God's plagues? Don't you know that this Moses is the one whom God used to lead you through the the dry bottom of that Red Sea and get you to safety? Don't you know that it's this Moses who raised his hand so that Israel prevailed against Amalek? Don't you know that this Moses cared so much for you that he almost burned out trying to be the judge for everyone in the nation? Don't you realize this Moses is right now meeting with God on the mountain on your behalf so that you can be a king of priests and a holy nation? That is who this Moses is. He's doing what Yahweh wants him to do. And we will wait for him to come down from the mountain and we will continue to do the things that the Lord has instructed us to do. So stop your whining, stop your complaining, stop your arguing, stop your impatience and trust that God's grace and kindness are still at work and trust that God's word is true. That's what we want Aaron to do. But instead he says, bring me your gold. Now, there's some passages of Scripture you just wish you could reach in and slap silly, right? This is one of them. What are you doing? Sadly, what we have hoped for from Israel's high priest didn't happen. Instead of being God's leader and shepherding God's flock with God's word, the flock set the agenda, and Aaron followed right along. And friends, hear this. Without strong leadership that is willing to stand for God and his word, the people of God will turn to their own idolatry. That is Christianity 101. I mean, you just see that throughout Scripture. And that is why I and the elders at Gateway desperately need your prayers for wisdom, for discernment, for boldness and clarity, that we would be willing and able to speak the truth of God's word without apology and with grace. Not be angry, but speak the truth to say, look, this is what God's word says. I'm standing on what God's word says. I can do nothing else but stand on what he says. I can't capitulate to the present wind that's blowing through culture when God's word is an anchor to truth. Listen to the counsel the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy, his protege. He says in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, beginning at verse 1, you know this passage well, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen and with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. But hear this, friends. What we have written here is describing not the condition of the world, but the condition of the church. See, we often come to this passage, oh yeah, that world out there is terrible. No, he's saying this is happening in the church. This is what the church looks like when it's overrun by worldliness and idolatry. And so it's no surprise that just in the next chapter, just a few verses down, in chapter 4, verse 1 and following, Paul says to Timothy, and this is, these are his last words to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You can put in there idolatry. For you, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, friends, this is a daunting task in a daunting context. But it's what God calls every pastor and elder to do. And he calls every church member to champion. So you said you thought you were off the hook here. But you're not. Because God's people should want this for their leaders. They should pray for this for their leaders. So... This should be happening from the pulpit. This should be happening in home groups and small groups and counseling and times of simple fellowship with the body of Christ. Friends, pray for your elders. Finally, the fourth thing. Guard, carefully guard your own heart. I'm working from the top down to you personally here. We must remember that we're all prone to wander. And that means we must learn to guard our own hearts. James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, idolatry is attractive. It looks like people are having fun. And many are. It looks like it will be fulfilling. And for a time, it is. It looks like it will benefit me, and to some degree it does. But idolatry will come back to bite. When we bite the fruit of our idolatry, we can be sure that it will bite back. Maybe not today. 
Maybe not this week, but the scriptures are clear. What you sow, you will also what? Reap. So instead of choosing to abandon God and his word, preach the gospel to your heart every day. Remind yourself of God's kindness and grace toward you. Remind yourself that that he truly is good and that that the voices in this world are seeking to nurture you uh, on a path not toward godliness, but toward their own idolatry. They're seeking to derail Christ from being seated on the throne of your life to pull you into conformity to their new religion, one that despises God and his gospel. To be replaced with the gospel of me, myself, and I, or the gospel of society. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And Jesus Reinforcing that says, from within, out of the heart man, uh, of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So here's what happens. Here's the sinfulness in your heart that you're wrestling with. And then there's the sinfulness of the world that's coming now and pulling. So you're getting pulled from your heart. You're getting pulled from the world. And friends, it's difficult. So you must guard your heart. In closing, I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 once again. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12, and I want you to hear this. Now these things that he just gave an illustration of that we've just read about here in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction. So he's saying to his audience there, look, these are written down as an example for the original audience, second generation in the wilderness. But they are also written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Friends, hear this, idolatry is real. Idolatry is dangerous, and it's coming for you. It is coming for you. So anchor yourself in God and his word and his church and his gospel. Lord, help us today. Help us to see the reality of the struggle of idolatry that is in our heart. Oh, Lord, we don't want to get angry necessarily with all that we read in Scripture. God has given us this record to reveal the condition and the struggle, the temptations of our hearts. We know much of what you say in your word. We know much of your character that's revealed in your word. And yet, Lord, how quick we are to abandon those things and get caught up with the idolatry that is right before us. And maybe this morning, Lord, there are people that are gathered here that need to repent of their idolatry. They've allowed a good thing, something gifted to you, or gifted by you to them, to become an ultimate thing. And they've embraced that idol. They've, they, they've, 
they, they've nurtured that idol. They're, 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 they're feeding that idol. Lord, may, may our hearts see the truth of the matter. May you reveal that. And Lord, may your people repent. Seek forgiveness of their sins. And determine with your help to, 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 to reverse the course of their idolatry. To, to embrace you as their master once again. Submit themselves, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be people who are willing to see our own sin. Be forgiven through the mechanism of repentance. We pray for our people, Lord. We pray for our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would be restored to you. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.